0: This is Penn Dust Radio. Welcome all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original, short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Penn Dust Radio definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at PendustRadio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.
1: Virginia Evans wrote the first draft of her novel in 61 days. Seven days a week, she was at her desk with coffee by 5 a.m. She wrote 98,000 words while working three part-time jobs, with two children at home under age four. Then she defied the odds and managed to secure a literary agent. All of that turned out to be the easy part. This candid essay is a fascinating glimpse into the process of writing, rewriting, and the strain of trying to please someone else. Recounting events that nearly destroyed her, Virginia opens up about her literary, Crack Up, rooted in a lack of confidence in her writing. The title is derived from F. Scott Fitzgerald's essay, The Crack Up, which she references in this story. Virginia Evans recently completed her Master's of Philosophy in Creative Writing at Trinity College, Dublin. The Irish Times published her essay, The Winter Place, and the Dublin-based literary magazine, Sonder, published her short story, Fields and Fields of Poppies A Crack-Up Written by Virginia Evans Read by Julie Niblett At brother's wedding, I was sitting for a minute with my in-laws. It must have been near midnight. The newlyweds had fled through a tunnel of sparklers. Daughter was sleeping in a broom closet somewhere. Son, delirious, running his Hot Wheels on the edge of the dance floor with his cousins. Husband's father was tired by that point. He'd danced for the sake of mother-in-law. She told me she remembered going to weddings and being embarrassed by how much he would dance. I mean, you should have seen him at Marshy and Wren's wedding, she laughed, turned to him. What year was that, John? Seventy-two? Maybe. He was drinking water. I was on my fifth or sixth glass of wine. At brother's wedding, I was ripe and raw, thirty with two babies, 30 and in possession of a house that required more money than we made. 30 with a novel I was happy with, but which none of the 100 literary agents to whom I'd pitched quite wanted to represent. 30 and leaning heavily into the consolation of an enviable, durable, extra-thick, thick skin. No, that's not right. 72 was when we had to go to the woods, so Marshy must have been married in 71, or 70. He nodded. I said, what do you mean you had to go to the woods? You know that story. No, I don't. Sure you do, she said, the whole Manson family thing. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, you do. We went back and forth like that, which is typical. You know the girl who tried to kill Gerald Ford? She was one of Charles Manson's girls. Do you know what I'm talking about? I really didn't, but I nodded. Squeaky from, she told me, the girl who tried to assassinate the president but was apprehended and sent to prison, along with the rest of the Manson family gang. They'd found her hit list. The details she gave were vague, or I was vaguely drunk, but the gist was that my grandfather-in-law, an executive at Westinghouse Corporation, was on the list of folks to be offed. So we had to go into hiding, she said, laughing at my expression. I was only engaged to John then, and we went out to this big family cabin property in the woods near Lake Erie for a few weeks, until it blew over. In the morning, we sat around with family wedding hangovers, drinking coffee and eating duck donuts. I was thinking about mother-in-law, a working-class girl of the 60s, hiding from Charles Manson with her future husband's wealthy family. I thought, what if the hiding was longer than two weeks, and what if the family was awful? I thought... What if they were saturated in lies and secrets and nobody talked about it? I thought, what if it all came out in the woods? I thought, that'd make a good book. I thought, maybe the quick scrawl of a new story might cleanse my palate. It wouldn't have to be good. It would only have to remove the residue from my tongue. Here are the numbers. I wrote the first draft in 61 days, two months in 2016. August and September. 98,000 words of text while working three part-time jobs with my two children under four at home. The alarm went off at 4.45 a.m., seven days a week. To the desk with strong dark coffee at five o'clock. Kids out of their rooms at seven. Husband to work by eight. Work while kids napped. Work when grandparents offered to take the kids. Kids to bed at seven o'clock p.m., work until 11.30. Go to bed, rinse, Spit, repeat. It removed the residue from my tongue, all right. By October, the exercise had done its work. I hadn't been looking to write a new book. I wasn't ready yet. However, the sneaking ambush of this story upon me was exactly what I needed. The old book was out of my mind, replaced by this new book. In November, I read the novel. I liked it. Miraculously, I found it was decent. Not the next great American novel, but decent. I didn't tell a soul, not even husband. I went through an edit. It improved. Now that I wasn't planning to toss it, I began to sculpt it. Lovingly, tenderly, I massaged the story into itself. I slowed down. I worked for months at an even, measured pace. I began to believe it could become something beautiful. A secret I kept small and buried in the deepest soil of myself. The editing revived me, and as the engine of my effort cooled, a bit of balance returned to my days. Finally, there was a Saturday in early spring. The pink down of cherry blossoms blew into the street, collecting in mounds by the curbs. My eyes were itching so awfully I kept wet towels in a plastic bag in my purse to hold over my face when I couldn't take it. I went along with husband and kids to a soccer game. He always played in these adult sports leagues, men in their thirties and forties still running and cutting and tackling like they were in high school. The bad sportsmanship made me cringe and made me laugh. They took it so seriously, their recreation. I thought it would have made a good comedy sketch, but I didn't say it to him. It was a bright, cold morning, and I sat on the old quilt from the trunk with daughter in my lap, eating peanuts one after another. There was another wife there I knew. How's the writing going, she said. Oh, that question. But I smiled. Really well, actually. I'm working on something new. You're amazing, she said. I couldn't write two pages. This is a commonly repeated misalignment of concepts. The whole private, lonesome world of a person who writes creatively, the construction of story through customs, fears, tics, psychoses, is incomprehensible to a person who doesn't. I shook my head and watched as a guy on another team, the next field over, took a soccer ball to the stomach and got the wind knocked out of him. Oh, the other wife said, did you see that? I grimaced, remembering once, years before, watching husband have the wind knocked out of him on a football field, poised to release the ball for a long throw down the field. When he was looking high, the guy came in low and hit him with the outside of his shoulder in the soft part of his belly. I remember the way my man fell, curled into himself like a seashell, like a child. How his mouth opened over and over, panic in his eyes. All of his might stripped off before he was able to catch his breath. I had stood up and began to walk toward the sweaty tangle of men in their 20s. But then he stood, placed his hands on his knees and from 30 feet away, caught my eye and put his hand up to me. It's okay, go back. By summer, the manuscript was as good as I could make it, and I gave it to my mentor, with whom I'd come into an unlikely friendship through work. He was a writer too, a side gig to his life as an attorney, and 30 years my senior. Mentor was always hard on me, but once he said, You will be much better than me one day. Keep going. It's possible if I hadn't met him, I'd have given up the whole shtick. He read the novel and said it was ready. I sent queries describing the story to a few agents I had researched. My son was turning four. The basement kept flooding, and we'd discovered there were rats in the crawl space when I watched one scurried by in the middle of the afternoon. The responses were positive I'm interested. Sounds cool. Send it over. I had trained myself never to be excited at a potential. Interest was not the same thing as acceptance. I'd talked myself out of confidence and assumed a permanent posture of apologizing. I sent the book to three literary agents in New York. The day I received my first offer of representation, I was sitting at a red light in my station wagon with my daughter behind me in her car seat. Throughout my adult life, I'd kept my phone on silent, but now I was always listening for its chime even though the majority of chimes had nothing to do with the novel. I was frantically alert and had attention to people, apps, ads, messages, and notifications so that I wouldn't miss, even for a single minute, an email from New York. The chime. I looked at the screen. The email subject line was, Your manuscript. At this stage, it was always a rejection, but I could see the first few words of the email. I loved it. I pulled off onto a side street, my heart beating in my ears, chest, fingers. Daughter began to whine to go home. Hold on, hold on, I shushed her. I went back to the email. I loved it. I think it's smart, compelling, beautiful. Can we talk on the phone? I'd been bathing in ice and had lost all sensation in that part of myself. At once, the water began to warm. Feeling began to return, and I wept. I wept body racking sobs, half-shouting, and in the seat behind me, daughter sat wide-eyed, terrified. I'm happy, I told her, turning around, grabbing her small, socked foot in my hand, feeling the tiny bones of her toes. I'm crying because I'm so happy. This was relief. Immediately, I began to imagine the next few years of my life, a life in which my work yielded an income and relief from some of my financial burdens. I imagined my name on a book facing outward at the airport bookshop. This agent was kind, relaxed, and thrilled. She talked about my characters by name. She told me the small details that had captured her, details which had, until this moment, only existed in my own mind, now impressed on hers. She said she was amazed by the restraint and by the syntax. She talked about the future of the book, the completion of the book. With a strong gust under the edges of a grounded kite, I began to feel the surprising lightness of success. Around the same time, a few days later, another agent contacted me for a phone call. An embarrassment of riches! She had a friendly hyphenated name. This call was very different, though. She thought the book's concept was good and the writing was clean, but it wasn't fully hatched. It has potential, she said, I think this could be something like a modern classic, but it needs work. Well, damn, I thought. The preening peacock in my repressed psychology, the one I kept quiet and caged, inflated its chest. Envisioning myself on a stage somewhere, accepting my award, being interviewed on fresh air by Terry Gross about the story behind my modern classic. In a follow-up email, this agent spelled my name wrong. I went to mentor. Which one should I choose? I don't know, you just have to make a decision. Who sold more good books? They're probably even. You have to go with your gut, then. Do you trust your gut? I shrugged. You make a choice by stepping forward. In time, there is no stepping back. Mercy is unlinked to time, as is control. The river only runs in one direction. I did not sign a contract with the first agent, the one who came to me in respect, in delighted wonder at what I had written. We'll call that agent the catch I released. When I look back on the decision I made to sign with the agent who saw my potential instead of the one who had found my work smart, beautiful, and good, I see two significant ingredients, my lack of self-confidence and vanity. Surely the catch I released wasn't smart enough if she thought my work was good. I wasn't good. But I could be good. At some point. When, I had no idea. But I felt far more comfortable with the agent who said, You're all right, but you're not great, than with the one who said, You have what it takes. To an outsider, a devastating lack of self confidence is a pitiable affliction. To the afflicted, It is merely the feeling of living. And vanity. I wanted to be great. I wanted to write the modern classic. I could do the work. If it meant going back to the trenches, I'd return to the trenches. I was comfortable in the trenches. I edited the book based on the plan Agent and I together had decided. I poured every ounce of attention into the draft. I had always enjoyed editing more than writing anyway. Here, I was comfortable. In the dark, neck bent, eyes crossed, I told myself that I was happy working with Agent. I had a literary agent, yes, thank you, I know, it's really amazing, who would deliver my novel from the womb into the light of the world. Still, there was something I hadn't factored in before. Another opinion. Now I had something to prove to someone else. Now I was sculpting for my taste and hers. I carved out a second storyline from the first, one that went into a darker and uglier past. Think Shirley Jackson, she had said. I made the setting more somber, more atmospheric. I sent her the draft. Weeks passed. I caught up on sleep and cleaned the house. I prepared for the holidays, but waiting for her response was what I was always doing at every moment. My phone was always in the back pocket of my jeans. The sound of an email, every single time, for weeks, and hoping it was her. It took such a long time for her to get back to me. Weeks and weeks. When she finally did, she'd read the first third. I'm 60 pages in, and there's no momentum yet. Have you edited the whole thing? You got back to me very quickly. I wasn't sure if you would have had time to do it at all. This was followed by her diagnosis of what the first 60 pages were missing, and how they needed to be changed before she would finish reading. Had I edited the whole thing? My reply was polite. I understood. Too drawn out in the beginning. I could change it. I would, and I'd send her another draft. The first night of my insomnia, I figured the decaf coffee I'd ordered that afternoon at Starbucks had been accidentally made with caffeine. I was up until 4 a.m. My alarm went off at half past four. I got up to work on the draft. On the second night, I cried. During the months I couldn't sleep, I was angry, fitful, frantic. A lifetime of finding immediate relief in sleep. Now I lay awake for hours, but rarely changed the alarm to ring after four. If I wrote from four o'clock to seven o'clock in the morning, it meant by the time husband and kids were waking up, I'd already put in the day's work. Once I overslept; when I woke the sun was up, and I raged. In the kitchen husband had the kids dressed for school and eating breakfast; the dog had been out; he was ready to walk out the door for work. "Hey," he said brightly, "how could you have let me sleep?" Six eyes widened in my direction. "I thought you wanted to; you need it; you're exhausted. What I need is to get my work done before you have to go to work because once you're gone, I have the kids, the house, dinner, and the meeting, and you can't help because you're at work. So now I have lost today because you let me oversleep, I screamed. It's just one day, Jin. Tears came in a rush, and I could taste my foul morning breath, feel the fried frizz of my hair like a halo and an anxious sweatiness under my arms and the grit of the floor under my bare feet. The dog nosed my knee, and I pushed her away. You don't understand! I shouted like a bloody teenager in front of my children, who looked on, amazed. You have no idea how stressed out I am right now. Later, when this period of my life was over, I read F. Scott Fitzgerald's essay, The Crack Up, describing his own periods of breakdown. He wrote, one is not waiting for the fade out of a single sorrow but rather being an unwilling witness of an execution, the disintegration of one's own personality. Before working on the next draft, I wrote the novel out in bullets on enormous sheets of paper like sails. The details of the book were scrawled on the left half of each page. With duct tape, I hung them around the den. We bought the house because of that room, those six-foot windows with their Georgian panes, the lazy gatekeepers of light, letting the cold in through their cracks. The whole of that old, hollow house filled with light from sunrise until noon through those windows that rose up around my writing desk. The pages narrating my novel hung over the windows, a flimsy stained glass lifting gently whenever the door opened. One by one I brought the pages down to the floor, filled in the right side of each page with changes, growth, development, and linkages. Building this kingdom of story, Summoning it from my imagination, hypnotized by the process, I was rebuilding my confidence in the story. The pages hung around the room for weeks. I needed them. To read the ideas I'd written, yes, but simply to have them surrounding me. To feel the narrative around and over me as a dome. As a cathedral. A cathedral of story. When we had a dinner party, our friends weren't surprised. My mania was a surprise to no one, and, I admit, it was a pleasure to me. But I was, like Fitzgerald, drawing on resources that I did not possess, mortgaging myself physically and spiritually up to the hilt. I had done the hardest things. I had written the book and signed with a good literary agent. Now I wanted to rest. I felt I had earned rest, but it wasn't to be. I finished the draft in a fog of relief and confusion. I sent it off to agent and waited. Mentor and I were sitting in the convention center during a meeting, which had by then commenced on the other side of the removable partition. I sent it off to her again. Okay, he said. He was so weary of the whole thing, that web of agents and publishers where email made correspondence fast and thoughtless. He had warned me, back in the beginning, to keep my integrity. It was my book. It's not a perfect book, he had said, but it's good. I can't sleep, I said. He nodded and said something in Latin he knew I wouldn't be able to translate. I told him how I'd reworked the first sixty pages and the rest of the book. The characters I'd changed, the structure I'd reconfigured. She spells my name wrong. Oh, hell. I looked down at my shoes. Do you think it's better? He asked. I guess. He nodded. Honestly, I can't even remember. I liked it how it was, he said. He stood and took a chocolate chip cookie from the buffet. Even though most of the food was usually awful, you couldn't find a better cookie in the whole city. You're young and you're in it, and I'm not, he said. But listen, it's your book. It's not your agent's book. I know you have to do certain things to break through. But you know, don't forget that it's your book. Walking home that day, I thought of what he'd said. I liked it how it was. A sick feeling was spreading through my bowels, the first inkling of uncertainty in something other than myself, which I ignored. The most difficult thing about editing a novel is finding a way to achieve the bird's eye view. To crawl outside the story and outside yourself, to see the thing for what it is, to see yourself for who or what you are. There was the novel I had written, and the novel she envisioned. I did not understand, in the haze of my striving, with the salty sweat in my eyes, that they were not the same thing. The details of the next step aren't worth repeating. I waited weeks for a response. Eventually, I prodded her, and when she replied, she said she was still reading. She spelled my name wrong. She'd misspelled my name in almost every email she'd ever written me, despite my subtle attempts to correct her by including it spelled correctly, and my one less subtle attempt when I told her directly, as a postscript, how it was spelled. It's not there, she wrote a few weeks before Christmas. It wasn't good enough. There wasn't enough at stake for the brother. The tension hadn't built to a substantial enough summit. The payout over the father was not quite enough. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Do you still feel up to this revision? I had hitched my wagon and all its wares to a woman I'd met once over oysters in Soho. A woman I had talked to on the phone twice, who couldn't figure out how to spell my name. For 12 years, I had been pouring every ounce of energy I could into writing fiction, and I couldn't call myself a writer. I write fiction, I would say. Or, more often, I work part-time for a non-profit, and I'm a stay-at-home mom. None of these were lies. None were the whole truth. I was as thin as thread. People always ask, how's the writing going? Or, when will I be able to buy your book? these questions made me want to quit. What book? I wanted to scream. I wanted to be something else. I wanted another goal, an achievable one. I wanted to be anything else. The next draft was written in the long, cold winter months following the holidays. Dark, quiet mornings. Dark, quiet afternoons. Dry, pale skin. Nothing on the calendar but the dreaded obligations of living. The porch furniture waterlogged, the vines on the garden trellis were brown and brittle. This draft was written in fear, the distant sense of something coming up from behind me. I was Victor Frankenstein, pulling the thing apart, stitching it back together, feverish with horror and hope for the thing to take on the life Agent was seeking, not realizing what I was actually creating. Here's what was happening. I was pacing. I stopped cleaning the house and cooking. I fed my kids cereal for three meals a day or Annie's organic white shells macaroni and cheese when I started to feel guilty. And let's be clear, I felt guilty all the time and worried that I was ultimately in fucking adequate. The world in which I was living was inside my own head. I became mean. I read books and thought that I could write better. I was harsh. I declined invitations to social engagements. There was a quote from Annie Dillard I'd jotted down years before, taped to the window sill over my desk that said, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. The writing was quite literally on the wall, or the sill. In hindsight, the writing was always on the wall. It is always on the wall but nobody sees it until it's too late, and nobody ever will. And that is the whole miserable point. A crack-up was the perfect summation. The solid thing was now a pile of pieces. Is that what had happened to me? I sent it to her this morning, I said to husband in late spring. We were on the sofa watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, my legs outstretched, my head in his lap. He paused the video. You finished? Yes. Congratulations, darling. Don't say that. Okay, then how do you feel? Scared. It's the best I can do. I can't do better. Do you feel like it's better? I can't remember any of it. He leaned down and kissed my forehead. Good job. I'm not sure it is. I honestly cannot remember what it is anymore. He kissed my forehead again, and after a minute, hit play on the show. On a Monday afternoon early in summer, I was wiping down counters in my kitchen in the hour of silence when both children were resting in their bedrooms. My phone chimed. I rubbed my hands on my jeans, held the phone up, and saw her friendly hyphenated name. The phone grew heavy as a brick. I have disappointing news, the email began. My eyes darted to the signal words I needed in order to quickly understand. Just doesn't ever get off the ground for me. Near the bottom, she wrote, I'm sorry. It was a classic breakup, a list of my glowing attributes to cushion her ultimate rejection. I have never played sports. I have never experienced getting the wind knocked out of me. But I recalled when we were young, and husband did. Later, he said that I had gotten the wind knocked out of me, as if it was nothing. But as I stood there reading her email once, and again, unable to draw in oxygen, I thought of that. It was not nothing. She was my literary agent, and then with a suddenness that swept the breath out of me, she wasn't. I slid down the wall and closed my eyes. There was a tingling sensation all through me and a heaviness on my neck. The feeling was a disappointment that held me under water. Above, Sun was running his Hot Wheels along the wood floor in his room. A man does not recover from such jolts, Fitzgerald mused. He becomes a different person, and eventually, the new person finds new things to care about. I agreed with the person who agreed with me that I wasn't very good. I agreed so heartily that I signed my name to a binding contract that said so. Sometimes I rewind in my memory to the day in the car with Daughter, when I got the email from the catch I released. I think of the way the sun made the leaves a vivid green, how the droplets of water from the car wash clung to the windshield and danced in the light, how Daughter was surprised by my joy, her kicking socked feet, her sticky hands, how it felt right then, at that precise moment. There's no rewinding time, but it doesn't mean the past is gone. I'd done the work, all of it. I built the house with my own hands, with the resources found in my own woods. I'd worked hard enough to get the literary agent, and when she gave me my tasks, I'd completed them to the best of my ability. With her direction, I had made the work better, Yes, worse in some ways, too, but ultimately, I think, better. Still, she'd rejected me. I couldn't make sense of it then, and I can hardly make sense of it now. We sold the big old house. I'm writing a new novel, and occasionally I steal a line from the old one. I haven't recovered, but I like to think I've changed. Fitzgerald said at the end, He had to give up everything else and become a writer only. For me, I had to build a fence around my writing life. I learned to enter that corral at certain times, and I learned to leave it sometimes, too. I don't believe in closure. Not really. Unless you're talking about death, and maybe not even then. There is no ending. There is no such thing as finishing until the work has been published. There is no book. There is a working document on my computer. This story is copyright 2019 by Virginia Evans. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Penn Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit PendustRadio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at RivercliffBooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.